of all the dumb things that have been done on this earth, I don't know if there's anything more dumb or foolish than stepping into the ring with the God who made all of this. You'd be better off stepping up to this guy and slapping him in the face. You'd be better locking yourself into a cage with ravenous lions. You'd be better off pulling the pin on a hand grenade and letting it fall to the floor. And that's because any one of those extremely dangerous situations that you might find yourself in, however unlikely, there's a chance, there's a chance that you might be able to come out of it alive. Maybe, maybe Tom, strongest man in the world, is uh, having a good day and he lets you have one for free. Or maybe the lions, they don't like the way you smell and they just move to the other end of the cage. Or maybe the hand grenade, it's, it's just a dud. Who knows? There's always a chance that you might be okay. But even if you're not, even if Tom decides to squeeze you into oblivion, or the lions decide to have you as a light snack, or you're blown to a million tiny little pieces, at least all you've lost is your life, this life. There's always eternity, right? That is if you believe in that sort of thing. Since the very beginning, there have been those who have defied the power and the authority and purposes of God. They've seen the evidence. They've seen the evidence that the world is bigger than they are. They, they know, they, they can tell just from pure observation that it's been meticulously, intricately designed. That the, the order and complexity of its systems, they're working together to sustain a beautiful, awe-inspiring environment that is filled with all the essential elements necessary for, for human thriving, for human flourishing. And of course, all of that points to an intelligent and personal and powerful and good designer. They have written on their hearts this innate sense of good and, and what is right and what is evil. What's right, what's wrong, what's morally acceptable, and that which is not. They know that they didn't bring themselves into this world. They didn't, they didn't will themselves into existence. No, they, 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 they're here. They didn't have anything to do with it. Nor can they stave off forever that inevitable, irresistible call of the end of their days, can they? They've heard some of the stories, some stories of people who have gone before them. There's actually millions of them who have clenched their fists and flung them into the air, and taken in oxygen into their lungs, stuck their chests out, hold their heads up high, and say, I am the master of my own destiny. I, I'm going to do it my way. I, I don't believe in this God. I don't need this God. I'm going to build up all that I desire without the help of this so-called creator. And yet, even though they have seen plainly all the evidence... They still choose to go their own way and disregard and defy God. Now, the Bible tells us that it started all the way back in the beginning when two people decided, God, we don't, we're, we're going to do things our way. And they were cast out of the paradise that was created for them. 
In fact, throughout the centuries, kings and, and poets and scholars and politicians, people from all walks of life, have either outright or, or by implication declared war on God. <laughs> we see it happening right now in our world. In our country, we see it. We see it in our neighborhoods. In some cases, maybe you even see it in your own homes as people decide to take up the crown and place it upon their own heads. And they march to the beat of their own drum. And they declare reality to be whatever they want reality to be. And they actively even work to vilify and demonize anyone who would align themselves with their greatest enemy. And that is God. But you know, for all the force behind it, and, and no matter how mainstream or how widely accepted this type of thinking is, the bottom line is, it's just foolish. It's just foolish. And that's because of the simple reality of who God is and the fact that we are not him. This morning, our passage gives us an example of what it looks like when fools go to war. We're not just talking about dressing up in a clown suit. We're not talking about arming ourselves with balloon animals and parachuting behind enemy lines, as ridiculous as that may be. Actually, this is more ridiculous than that. Anyone who would declare war on God is just plain Foolish, And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 12. I invite you to turn there. We're going to walk through it this morning. But first, let's ask, why is it important for us to even talk about this? The majority of us here have, have placed our trust in God. He is our king. We just sang these incredible songs about how he is worthy of our praise, how good he is, how majestic, how powerful he is. Do we really need to hear any of this stuff? Well, it is actually important for us to hear because we need to do three things. We need to discern, we need to know, and we need to respond. First of all, we live in a world where, where there are voices that are encouraging us to turn our backs on God, and they are both powerful and they are persuasive. We need to be able to discern them. We need to be able to see them for what they really are, and that's just foolish. We also need to know, we need to strengthen and clarify our picture of who this God is that we serve so that we may remain strong and steady in the fight we find ourselves in. And finally, we need to know how to respond. We need to be able to instinctively respond the right way when threats of all different kinds turn our direction. As we look at this man named Herod, we're going to ask ourselves, how do you spot a fool? We're going to consider why they're foolish in light of the fundamental truths of who our God is. And then we're going to consider what it means, what all this means for Christians. Let's dive right into it. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, About that time, and we'll stop right there. What time is this? Well, this is the time we talked about last week. This is the time right after believers were gathering together. The people were coming to faith in Christ in this area of the world called Antioch. 
And now they are sending aid. Tim, Pastor Tim told us that last week. They're sending aid back to where this all started. They're sending it back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, because there's a famine coming. People were hungry. Food was scarce. It was getting pricey. Not only that, but the environment was getting very, very hostile. The heat was being turned up on those who were aligning themselves with this Jesus character. Things were about to get hotter. Verse 1 again, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, who is this Herod guy? This is not the Herod that we might think of. This is not Herod the Great. He's not the one who executed his wife and then executed her mom and executed three of his sons. He's not the one who uh, ordered the death of all these male children in the vicinity of Bethlehem after Jesus had been born. That was Herod the Great, the one who was so insecure and so fearful of losing his throne that he would stoop to, uh, it, it seemed like, endless depths to protect his power. But the Herod we're talking about here in Acts 12 is the grandson of Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa I. Agrippa was raised in Rome. And even though he was raised in Rome, he always seemed to have this kind of edgy relationship with the powers in Rome. It was, it was his mouth that got him into trouble. It was debt that got him into trouble. Ended up leading him to be on the run for a period of time. He... he somehow insulted the emperor and found himself in prison. But when Tiberius died, all of a sudden, he rises to power and becomes actually the ruler of the largest area in Palestine. He cared a lot about keeping things under his thumb, about maintaining his control. That meant keeping his subjects as happy as possible and keeping the peace because the way he managed mattered because Rome was watching. So, as the religious leaders in Judea, they become increasingly bent on shutting this Christian movement down. He saw helping them, that's kind of a surefire way of earning their good graces. This is about popularity. This is about politics. This is about maintaining power and prestige and prominence of his kingdom. So he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. Look at verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, Herod's timing here is very, very strategic. He knew that during the week of Passover, the city of Jerusalem is just going to be swollen swollen to the max with devout Jews who had all come to worship. If he could take out some of the, the, the key leaders of this Jesus movement, well, then he could solidify his position with all of these religious leaders, these power holders in, in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And so he puts the brother of, of John to death. James, with the sword, it says. That's the prescribed punishment all the way back in Deuteronomy 13 for all of those who wander away and worship, worship other gods rather than the one true God. As far as the Jews were concerned, Jesus 
That's another God. Put him to death by the sword. And after Herod sees the reaction of the Jews, it pleased the Jews. Okay, well, we're going to go after the real big fish now. We're going to go after Peter, who was, without a doubt, the most prominent leader in the Christian community at that time. Verse 4 says this. And when they had seized him, they put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, Herod's no dummy. Or is he? No, he's no dummy in one sense. He knew that because of the regard that Christians had for Peter, it was way up here, and because of the fact that Peter had actually escaped from prison before, this guy is going to need some careful attention. So he takes no chances, and he places special guards on him. Maximum security, that's what we need here. There'd be four squads of soldiers, and they would rotate in and out. At any given time, there'd be two soldiers in the cell right there with Peter. There'd also be two stationed right outside the door. How many guards is it going to take to keep this guy in prison? Well, apparently, Herod thought he had it figured out. But that's a problem. There's a problem with those who go to war against God. They fool themselves into thinking that they can outmuscle God. How do you spot a fool? How do you spot a fool? Well, a fool lives as if God's power can be overcome. It's foolish. <laughs> Maybe you remember when Peter was arrested before. The Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, uh, holds court, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? Do we just kill him? And that's when Gamaliel stands up, that Pharisee, the well-known, pro well prominent, well-respected man, stands up, and he warns everyone that if, if what's going on here is from God, then it's absolutely pointless to try to stop them. And he was right. And that's because it is absolutely impossible to out-wrestle God. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. How can he do that? We can do that because there's no limit to his power. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is, of course, no way. No, no way. There is absolutely nothing that, that, that you can do to compete with his strength. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. And that is the first powerful truth that is so important for us to understand. And that is that God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. In Isaiah 44, 24, God says, I'm the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth with the help of many men. No, by myself. Who's going to compete with that? Forget about it. <laughs> you can't do it. And this is no secret, is it? It's no secret. Romans 1.20 says, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. It's clearly seen. B. 
being understood by the things that are made. You just look around. You look around at the things that exist out there, and you know something. You know a fundamental truth that is vitally important for your existence and the way you walk through this life. It says, even his eternal power. This is kindergarten stuff. (laughs) This, This is basic. And that's why... Anyone who thinks that they're going to arm wrestle this God and win is just plain foolish. And someone might say, you know, it's not very nice to to call people foolish. Well, you know, sometimes you just got to call it like it is, and the Bible certainly does. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 tells us that, that that's step one. Step one to knowing anything. Step one is not getting your colors down. (laughs) It is not knowing right from left. It's not knowing one plus one. It's not knowing your alphabet. No, it is that God is the all-powerful one, and you should take him seriously. You really should. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you refuse to believe the most fundamental piece of knowledge available to the human race, that God's power is to be feared, well, then you're a fool. Herod, thinking that he could rotate these these four squads of armed guards, him thinking that it was all he would need to resist God's power, that that was absolutely foolish. Herod was a fool, and he's not alone, is he? He's not alone. Because anyone who thinks that they can outmuscle this God with their strength, with their policies, with their police force or military force or the filters that they're in control of on their platforms or their chants, or their slogans, or their baseball bats, or their Molotov cocktails, they're just delusional. Delusional. If God wants to do something, you better believe he's going to do it. Nothing is going to stop him. But then someone might say, but what about these Christians? What about these poor Christians? They're they're here in, in Judea. They just heard the news that James has been killed. Peter, who's just thrown into prison. Even if God is all-powerful, don't they have reason to be afraid of Herod? God's power certainly didn't stop Herod from killing James. And that's right. Because God's omnipotence doesn't mean that God is always going to use his power all the time to help his people out of trouble. And it doesn't mean that he's going to keep them from from getting hurt or from getting sued or from getting vandalized or even put to death. But it does mean that they should trust him. It does mean that no matter how tall that these giants are that they face, how fierce the opposition may be, how deadly the threat, 
he's still their one best defense. No, it's not legal counsel. No, it's, it's not the police. And it's not a recall effort or a closet full of cannons. And it's certainly not some political knight in shining armor that they hope to vote into office to turn back the, to- the clock and make things the way they once were. No, because they know who their God is above and beyond anything and everything else. They look And therein lies our response. God's people rely on his power. And they do it in a way that looks, that makes themselves look absolutely powerless. Boy, it looks foolish, doesn't it? The world looks at them and they say, are you kidding me? Take them to court. Do this. Do that. But God's people rely on his power through prayer. And that's exactly how they responded, isn't it? Exactly what the Christians do in Acts 12. Verse 5 says that while the people, well, Peter was being kept in prison. He's waiting to be brought out after the Passover is over. Public trial is going to take place. But what are God's people doing? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word earnest, ektanos, it means strenuous. It's a picture of of grunting, muscle-stretching effort that goes into exerting oneself to the limit. That's the kind of prayer that was going on here. That's the kind of prayer that was taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying. Do you recall that? Great drops of blood are coming from his forehead as capillaries are bursting because of the strain that is on him, the passion with which he is praying. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about here. This was a desperate moment. Desperate moment. This was an impossible, terrible force that had come against them. They had, they had felt the increasing heat of persecution there in Jerusalem. Its dials being turned up here. Now the furnace is stoked to the max. And so what do they do? They pray. Why? Why just pray? Why not do what the zealots were doing? Why not send a bunch of dagger-wielding assassins into the crowd to inflict a real sting into the heart of the the opposition, of the, the force of oppression that is coming against them? Why not do that? Because they knew what the people of God have known since all the way back into Psalm 46. And even before that, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. There's no better source of rescue. There's no surer source of power than God. It continues. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at his swelling. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. I love that confidence. We need to have that confidence. The God of Jacob is our fortress, no doubt. 
Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, God says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Is this your God? Bethany, is this your God, the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God? Stand in awe, marvel, and yes, even be a little afraid, for the God you serve is mightier than any force that dares come against you on this earth. Do you have trouble? That means it's time to pray. A fool lives as if God's power can be overcome. But God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And that's why Christians rely upon him through prayer. As the time was drawing near for Herod to haul Peter out in front of the crowd, have this public trial that just makes an example of him, something happens here. You might think that Peter, up all night, what am I going to do? What's going to happen to me tomorrow? And just rolling it around again and again. What a sleepless, horrible night that must have been. But no, Peter's sound asleep. Sandwiched between two guards? Sounds a little uncomfortable. You'd think he'd be terribly uncomfortable. But his faith in his strong God, it, it must be the thing that made the difference here. Look at verse 7. Let's read a little bit here. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Not even this light's waking him up. He has to strike him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fall off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. Simple instructions. Apparently, he was gathering his bearings. What's going on? Okay, step one, dress yourself. He did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He didn't know it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is absolutely incredible. Is this for real? Is this for real? Actually, maybe the better question is, does God still do things like this today? He's certainly able to. I haven't been in prison yet, yet. But I'll tell you this. Since I've been here at Bethany, there have been more than a few times where we've seen the chains that we thought were pulling us down miraculously released. Sometimes it was financial. Sometimes it was relational. And there was conflict 
like you wouldn't believe that you didn't think there's no way this is going to resolve itself. So we're going to have to make some really hard decisions here. This is going to explode. What is going to happen to this little church here over here in Westminster? And God moves. And you realize, oh, God, we didn't do anything. We, we prayed a little bit, but then he did this and did this, and it just went Want to hear some incredible stories about God providing, God rescuing, God making a way of escape? Talk to some of our elders. Talk to some of those who have served as deacons here. Talk to our missionaries. Man, when I talk to missionaries, the stories that I hear, God still works. There are times when the way God takes care of his people, it's just spectacular. Times when it's almost unbelievable. And that's exactly the way it was here in Acts. Peter goes to a home where he knew that Christians were going to be gathered. They gather there regularly. And he knocks on the door and he gives his name to the servant girl. And Luke tells us that her name was Rhoda. Why, Luke? Why, why is it important, the servant girl? Why are you telling us that? Well, I think it's because he wanted to give his readers a chance to go follow up on the story. You want to know whether or not this actually happened? Go talk to Rhoda, that, that servant girl. You ask her what happened here. And she runs into the house. She leaves Peter at the door. He's still locked outside. The guards could come by and pick him up at any moment. But she runs to tell everyone. They can't believe her. Uh, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Maybe it's his guardian angel. The Jews back then, they believed in personal guardian angels. Can't be Peter. There's no way. Isn't it funny how, you know, we can be relying on God's power, believing, telling ourselves, singing songs. He can do anything. He can do whatever he wants. And still there is evidence that shows that we have so far to go when it comes to our actual faith in this God. <laughs> As you and I have opportunity, let's do all we can to build up each other's faith, to help us to get to that point where something happens and we do believe. Because our faith is rock solid in the limitless power of God. Herod hears about it. He's furious. Full-scale search. We're going out there. We're going to find this man. And when there are, there, there's, he's nowhere to be found, he's, he's even more furious. He puts the guards to death. What kind of power this guy has. He's not messing around. Well, it's terrible embarrassment. Can you imagine? the ruler of the largest province in Palestine. I, I set maximum security here. I, I heard just, uh, just the other day, was it yesterday or today, uh, that uh, some, some uh, guy who killed five of his neighbors just escaped our, our forces? What an embarrassment. Well, he decides to, to flee the scene. And he goes about 55 miles away, as a crow flies, to Caesarea, Seaside town, coastal town. He's going to take some R&R &R here. I, I just, I got to remove myself. I got to get out of this situation. People are going to laugh. I know it. Here's another way to start, spot a fool. A fool lives as if God's justice can be avoided. See, a foolish person thinks that they can challenge, they can disobey, they can even try to fight against God, and they can escape all the consequences and that's where we bump up against the second truth about God. And that is, that is God is righteous and he is just. 
In English, those are two different concepts, but in, if you look at the Hebrew, if you look at the Greek, they're, they're tied to single words here. One theologian writes, God is, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32, he said, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness without iniquity just and upright is he. And that tells us that not only is he right in who he is and in everything that he does, but that where where it's within his power, he must actually rule rightly and bring to justice any and every wrong that he is aware of. And of course, since we already know he is all-powerful, we also know we didn't talk about it, but he knows everything. He's omniscient. So His character demands that he must judge justly, judge perfectly, not miss a single solitary offense. If God doesn't use his power to punish sin, well, then he wouldn't be a righteous, just God, would he? And that's actually the reasoning that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans 3 to explain why Jesus had to bear the punishment of our sin. It was quote, was to show God's righteousness. That's why Jesus had to take the sin upon himself. God can't let sin go. He can't let it go unpunished. So Christ is punished in our place so that we might escape the punishment and be restored back to him. That's the other side of God's character, his great love for us. So the two are displayed perfectly in Jesus. Salvation, it's a justice thing. It's a righteousness thing. It's God showing himself to be perfectly just in carrying out the full punishment of our sin and at the same time making a way for guilty sinners to be forgiven. It's a loving thing. This is salvation. Herod would not know salvation. He wouldn't acknowledge his sin. He wouldn't trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Instead, he'd just go on on living actually run to the coast, run to the seaside town. I'll escape God's justice. He was a fool. Acts 12, 20, it tells us that while he was in Caesarea, people from Tyre and Sidon, that's just outside of his jurisdiction, they come, they come trying to convince him, will you cool your anger? See, Herod had been angry for some unknown reason. I don't know what it was. A bunch of scholars don't know what it was. He was angry with the region of Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon relied upon Herod's territory to provide them with food. Well, guess what? I'm angry with you. You're not getting food. Oh, but wait, there's famine arising here. Remember last week from Acts 11:28, Agabus foretold that there's going to be this famine. People are going to become desperate for food. These people relied upon Herod for food. So they come to him. Herod, please, please cool your anger. So the day comes in verse 21. Herod decides, I'm going to give a speech. I'll get out. I'll respond to these people. He puts on his fanciest clothes. The historian Josephus, he tells us that those clothes were made of silver. And that when the sun hit Herod just right, it was blinding blinding. He is radiant before the people. You think he planned it that way? (laughs) 
That's when the people who were very motivated to flatter this king, they say that his was the voice of a god and not of a man. You can imagine how Herod ate that up. He had them exactly where he wanted them. This was a moment of redemption, I imagine, for him. Who cares if Peter escaped? That was a blow to my ego. But look, these people think I'm a god. (laughs) Ha ha, look at me. How's that for an ego boost? What a pinnacle moment this must have been for him. This is the greatest moment of my life. But Luke tells us that it was also the moment that God had determined to rain down justice on Herod. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, there's some detail we could go into here. We could get into uh, what some doctors think is actually going on here. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily important for us to get what we need to get out of this passage. And it's a little gross. But here's the takeaway. You and I, we live in a world where we may have moments that feel like there just isn't any justice. Where is the justice? seems like each and every day, people seem to say whatever it is that they want to say, even if they're outright lies and they get away with it. People are able to do whatever it is that they want to do. And what do the authorities do? Well, so often they just turn a blind eye, or sometimes they just make excuses. You don't understand. you got to give these people a break for what they're doing here. The world, it feels like it's flipping upside down. Good is bad, bad is good, right is wrong, and wrong is right. But it's times like these that we need to remember that fundamental to the character of God are righteousness and justice. And because of that, we need to look to him. We need to wait on the day when he will set things straight. Here's our response. God's people, they trust that he will bring every wrong to justice. Are you trusting that? That changes things, doesn't it? Yeah, we, we should long for justice. We should strive for justice. Where, where it's within our means, we should act and work for justice right here, right now, in our world. But ultimately, we're trusting that God will bring everything to justice. One last thing, one, one final thing that those who make war with God are foolish to believe, and that is a fool lives as if God's plans can be thwarted. It's not difficult to, to see how for those who rise to power, they think that, that they're the ones who make things happen in our world. They're the ones who determine the course of history, right? History's going this direction. You're not going this direction, you're on the wrong side. So they pay no regard to what God's spoken in his word. And they think they can put a stop to whatever movement that God might be doing here. They're wrong. They're foolish. Herod may have thought that he held the strings that determined whether or not this whole Christian thing was going to last. He was wrong. He was foolish. Throughout the centuries, there have been those who have attempted to silence, to stop, to eliminate the people that God has set apart for himself. 
They tried to put an end to the purposes that God has made clear, so clear right here. Don't you sometimes just wish, open this and read it and be afraid? They've tried, and they failed again and again and again. It's in the history books. Just like Gamaliel so prophetically said to the Jewish Sanhedrin, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. That's because of the third truth about God's character. You've heard it before. God is sovereign. He is sovereign. No ifs, ands, or buts. No exception clauses. We've read it here at Bethany many, many times because it's true. God says in Isaiah 46, 9, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all I purpose. We've seen it over and over again in Acts, haven't we? We'll see it more as we continue on in Acts. Opposition arises. People determine to thwart God's plans and they all come to nothing. Come to nothing. Luke tells us in verse 24, here it is again, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And this is a pivotal shift here in Acts. We're going to turn the focus from Peter and his ministry, and now all of a sudden it's going to be about Saul whose name would be Paul. You can't stop it. Someone needs to tell these people that make war against those who want to remain faithful to God and his word, you can't stop this. You cannot stop this. No matter how hard you try, no matter how loud you shout, no matter what legislation you pass, God alone is sovereign, and you cannot thwart his plans. You can't do it. You're foolish if you try. You will regret it if you do. Because like Johnny Cash saying, you can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. You may throw your rock, hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Well, the foolish rage against God's plans. We respond. God's people desire to live in line with his plan. We're not hoping to get God onto our side. Like so many people out there, God, God get onto my side. I'm going this direction. You follow you me. You bless me. You make my life everything that I want. No, 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 no. God brings us onto his side. We get behind his plans. But you know, it hasn't always been this way. We weren't always on his side, were we? No, like we were reminded on Easter Sunday, all of us are like these sheep, these dumb sheep that have gone astray. Every single one of us. No better than this man named Herod. We're, we've all been fools. We've all lived our lives warring against this good God. You're so good to me. The God who made us, the God who loves us. We all deserve what Herod got. And that, and what's more, we, we all deserve to be punished. 
cut off from God's power forever, from his goodness forever. And yet the Bible tells us through Jesus, everything changes. Through Jesus, when we were, when we were once at war, we can have peace. Like Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. To stand in God's presence? Are you kidding me? No disobedient warmonger should be able to do this. But because of Jesus, we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's only by trusting him. It's only by acknowledging that he took the punishment of our sin upon himself at the cross, died the death that we deserve, rose from the grave so that we might be risen back to new life with God as God's people, as his adopted family. It's only through Jesus that we can be saved. And because of Jesus, this foolish war can be put to an end. Have you trusted in Jesus? If you haven't, now's your moment. Now's your moment to put the foolishness aside and say, God, I surrender all of it. Surrender all. I've been fighting against you. I've been going my own way, charting my own course. It felt really good. It's going to come to nothing. There's no point in resisting you. No point in warring against you. God, here I am. Forgive me. Thank you that Jesus Christ took my sin upon himself at the cross. Wash me clean. Bring me from the dark to the light. Adopt me as your child. I want you as my king. Would you do that now? For those of us that are in Christ, in the face of whatever obstacles rise around you, remember, your God is powerful. He is a God of righteousness and justice. He's going to make things right. You got cut off on the freeway this morning. Maybe. He'll make that right. And he's going to bring about his purposes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. This is what it's all about. This is what we need. We we don't need more of talking about, singing about how you're going to do this for us, do that for us, how you're on our side. Lord, that's not what it's about. It's about you, your glory, your majesty, your plan. Lord, may we lay down ourselves at your feet and say, God, you are magnificent. We love you and we trust you. We want to be all about you and we cannot wait for the day when we are in your presence, fully in your presence, and see you face to face, we'll give glory that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name.